Welcome to the How to Build a Parachute podcast. For those of you that have taken the jump, but are not quite sure how you're going to nail that landing. In this episode of the How to Build a Parachute podcast, I chat to Sebastian, aka Bash Daniels. He's a former UCT student where he was the president of the Entrepreneurial Society and graduated top of his class. He's also the founder of Ground Culture and Coffee Shop Blues. We dive into what it is that motivates this man to reach such heights. We reflect on the invaluable role his parents played in his upbringing and the manner in which they shaped his views on the world. Seb reflects on how a year abroad after school and hours of hard work doing something he didn't enjoy lit the fire in him to put all his time and effort into something he was passionate about. We chat about his discovery of the incredible value that the informal economy in South Africa possesses and his on-the-ground research of the inner workings of Stockfels, a powerful informal community loan system. He shares stories of how cross-cultural collaborations opened his eyes and heart and shaped both his personal and business ethos of how bridging the gap between informal and formal businesses and entrepreneurs alike is a powerful way to unite people. The idea of social entrepreneurship how you can create social change, but still apply a business model to the idea, and how this system helps them help each other and thus help themselves. Seb shares some pearls of wisdom about his past business ventures, successes, and failures, and some lessons he's learned along the way. All right, there we go. We are live. Seb Daniels, thank you so much for joining us on the How to Build a Parachute podcast, my brother. So good to have you here. Yeah, so lucky to be here, man. Dude, let's dive straight in. Um, obviously, let's we're going to get man. to ground culture and the birth of that and the amazing stuff you're doing and the amazing work you are doing um, in the local scene in South Africa at the moment. With your upbringing, both your folks were journalists. I mean, what was like? What was that like? That must have been a bit of a different experience, different upbringing. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt pretty normal because <laughs> it was my upbringing. But uh, yeah, I do think, <laughs> I do think it was... Uh, yeah, I do think it shaped the way I think a lot. Uh, growing up with two parents as journalists, especially my mom being like a TV journalist for SBC, we I grew up just with a very different lens of the world. You know, I watched the news every single day. We spoke about it. We discussed it. My parents were both journalists during apartheid, so they were very, very into the movement. And and so, yeah, so it kind of black and white has always just seemed like the obvious thing you know never drawing a line but uh in the holidays and stuff uh, like most kids would go chill at home i would often have to go to work with my mom and like join whatever protest she was she was like filming or whatever reporting on so i grew up like super aware of these things i just thought it was fun you know yeah but um i think it does kind of influence you going to protest didn't know what i was protesting about but that idea of like of doing the right thing i think yeah. It's instilled in me from a young age. I suppose you were exposed to a lot of issues that I suppose kids at a young age aren't really aware of. You know, I know my parents would harp on about the news, but when you're a kid, you don't, I mean, well, in my house and stuff, you know, you have, you feel like you have more priorities, but I suppose it must've been a bit of a blessing being exposed to all that stuff because you just become so aware of like your fellow human being in a sense, because you just, you know, exposed to that all the time. Yeah, yeah, and I think like it was, it was like more junior school, like so from what like seven till thirteen that I really got into because that's when my mom was on. So we'd watch every night, um, and that's a lot. Like that time is like it's like um, two thousand to two thousand seven. That's kind of the time where South Africa starts to to kind of come out of this democracy and and the 
the kind of honeymoon phase starts to kind of start wearing off. So I think that that kind of political period is very interesting in terms of like the whole white and black is starting to surface <clears throat> and that we actually still have differences between us. And, and those yeah. differences are actually much bigger. We're not in this phase of being like, ah, you know, like we, we, we united, we're free. It's a free and fair country You're starting to realize, yeah, we can vote. But uh, we know where the money, the money's still sitting on one side, the education's still sitting on one side, um, and those things start to start surfacing. So I think it was an interesting time watching the news during that period as well. So obviously that's, that's great about your buddies and your parents influenced your, your viewpoint quite a lot and exposed you to sort of political awareness. And then you went through school and once you graduated from school, you headed over to Thailand to do some teaching. Was that just for like a perspective change and a bit of a break? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know. I was a very different person in school. Like, I, I was just, yeah, I don't know who I, yeah, I didn't know who I was. I knew kind of what I believed in. And I got kind of very into history with Mr. Hellenberg. Mm. And then, but I kind of like, I, I was either going to go to the history routes, but I knew I had this like business incline. So I didn't know what to do. So I, yeah, I just went off with my girlfriend at the time, Jen, and we went to taught English in Thailand, which is, it's like the craziest thing, you know, what a going pleasure, 18 year old going over to Thailand to become a teacher. It was quite strange, you know, yeah. and uh, first job there, going to work in like an agricultural college. Where I was, the lessons were two hours and I was teaching kids that were age 16 to 19. So you're teaching kids older than you. And they like don't care about English. So it's a very interesting experience. I think, uh, yeah, it kind of. I traveled a lot. It was amazing. I hated the teaching. It's just not something for me, especially teaching like eight words a day. Um, but over that year, I then went to like the, the UK and I worked on a farm in Suffolk for like two months, earned some like crazy money, earning pounds, but worked like a hundred hours a week for two months straight and earned some great money. And I think over that like period, I just learned like I had this burning sensation inside that like just got stronger and stronger because I wasn't doing things I was passionate passionate about but I realized I had the ability to work really really hard and um, and then I went to Turkey and traveled for two weeks and there was no not one person in Tokyo Turkey and I got incredibly lonely this is kind of coming to the end of my gap I got incredibly lonely and I remember having this like burning burning sensation to do something you know to to do the right thing to to do something I was passionate about so I knew I was coming back to ECT to do business science, but uh, I wanted more than that. I wanted to really go guns blazing into something. It's actually very, I mean, you're very lucky that you took that step because, I mean, a few years ago, you know, gap years were, you know, a bit taboo. They weren't really a thing. And the fact that you were able to spend that year and put yourself through a bit of a, a, bit of a hard slog and a bit of a perspective shift and that realization of, you know, you want to do something you're passionate about before you've gone into studying, I think is an amazing thing because then you work towards leaving studying and you have a, a sort of ends goal of you want to work towards creating something that's going to light you up. Yeah. And I, and I think like taking a gap year, like different to, to everyone else. Like I did spend quite a bit of time in the studios when I went over to the UK, but the kind of the difference I saw there in like what I'd gone through, I was like incredibly lonely. I didn't, no one spoke English, you know, it was very isolating. But I learned a lot, you know, I went straight from school in this very comfortable zone to like way out of my comfort zone. And I think that teaches you like a lot about yourself when you're in those situations, you know, when you're in those deep lows, you learn like a lot about yourself. And I think kind of going on a gap year like that, I would recommend to anyone that's not really sure what to do because you'll, you kind of 
come to terms with who you are and what you really want to do in those really, really tough times. Yeah, I mean, I've experienced that on a small scale moving to Liverpool. And, you know, I kind of had a community. I had lots of friends. I had a career, whatever. And I've come and no one knows who I am. No one. It's just kind of like you take a jump and it's just like, well, make it work. And that's kind of, <laughs> that's where you learn those just because you're so out of your comfort zone and you have to sort of look introspectively and prioritize and work out who you are. So, dude, that's yeah. amazing. So that you you got that perspective at that age is pretty special. And then when you went back and did B, uh, business science, um, you were doing a business science and finance, eh? Hey? Yeah. You know, I did it in finance. I actually started with marketing, weirdly. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and then dropped the marketing to do finance with accounts. Like, I don't know who does that. And then, yeah, and then ended up finally dropping the accounts because in my final year, I was launching year two, which just got way too way too busy yeah just i mean it had like nine staff and i was like trying to manage people and then do my fourth year of university and accounts is no joke bro no accounts is no joke it gets very involved towards the end um and so i wanted to ask um your love affair with the essay sort of informal economy did that begin when did that begin that's a kind of interesting one uh i it began, so I said I was coming back with this like guns blazing mentality um, and I knew I wanted to do something. And then in school, like I said, with Mr. Hillenberg, I got so into um, Steve Biko and the Black Power movement. And, and really, like, it, I think it's a huge, I mean, he's probably my biggest role model, Steve Biko. As I realized that coming back, like stuff's got to change. You know, It's really got to change in this country. Like we, we are so divided you know and coming back from like being in thailand and whatever where the informal and formal work so tightly together and then you come to south africa and it's totally separated economies i think like i'd really like uh, kind of the, the black power movement really influenced me and then um yeah obviously just my parents being journalists i i, I got that upbringing and that influence but then i i came back went to university and i kind of got like reverse culture shock you know mm. i got back and and like i saw a whole lot of guys from school and like just kind of on a different level you know it's kind of like so world like world bound and had these big ideas of what i wanted to do it didn't have any like platform in terms of education but i just like i was just like what is going on so within three months of university i think it was april 20 2014 i found that my first business was, was called replicards which basically we decided we needed to take, like art was beautiful and inspirational and can really take you to another world. But majority of South Africans will never be able to experience that art. And we thought that was quite a shame. So we printed like 10 of the most famous pieces of art in their original side and, and printed them on canvas. We won a couple of awards and we got made, like, had like 10 grand or something. And we, yeah, we just, we went to like, we charged private schools like Rustenburg, Herzliya, um, Herschel, Springfield, quite a few of them, uh, a fee to do these like interactive arts experiences and get the things. And then for every school we do in um, in the private sector, we then go do one in, in the township. And that was my first entry into the township. And I can still remember that first drive in there getting lost, being like, what are we doing? But also being like, oh, but my mom does this all the time. So it's yeah. chilled, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, that's kind of the first big step I took on my own. And without without anyone holding my hand, so I think that's where I started toying with this idea of social entrepreneurship. And okay. I've always been business inclined. Like, 
threw quite a few parties in school, as you'll remember, I'm sure. And like, um, yeah, I just always enjoyed like selling plants around the neighborhood and whatever yeah. I could do to make a buck, you know? So I always loved that. And I think then I got this like really social side with Steve Biko and, and like understanding apartheid and really understand. And then I, what was great about like learning all that history is I had my parents just to literally ask the questions that I wanted to know. Yeah. Um, and they could give me like, like my dad, we had been on the phone with Pick Boater a couple of times. Like they were so involved in it, you know. So I could get direct feedback. And and with those two, I, this is with Replicard. I started toying with the idea of social entrepreneurship and how do we make social change? Yeah, how do we make social change without it being a once-off experience? Like NGOs and, and charity is great. Like I, and and I say that like I think like the charities and the NGOs that exist in this world, they should continue to do the work that they do. But I don't necessarily believe that any more NGOs should be created. I think there's a way where you can enact social change, but you can have a business model to it at the same time. So as your social change increases, you earn more money. And as you earn more money, you, you can impart more social change in the world. Mm. So the idea yeah. was always with Replicard was to be in the townships because that was the, the need for this inspiration was. So that's when we like just saw Mona Lisa in a newspaper and I was like, ah, everyone should see that. Oh, but wait, not everyone can. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I was like, cool, we should do that. And then that's where the thinking of like, cool, how do we do this? How do we show people this art, but without, we're still having a, a, like a business model and a way to make money behind it. And that's when we were like, okay, cool. We can just go to private schools. Because having that business model does make it sustainable though, you know, cause I think if you don't have the business model, then it can often be a flash in the pan. And I think, especially with this kind of thing, if you're trying to impact people long, long term, you know, you're going to have to build up a relationship and a consistency, you know, because yeah. it is quite a, a sad thing, but you often see like a lot of celebrities doing these token photo ops where it's not necessarily from the right place. You seem to have your, your heart in the exact right place, but you know, where they're kind of like, welcome to Africa. And they're like holding some bullshit thing and it's, yeah, they're yeah. not planning long term. But I suppose it's pretty powerful to be saying, yo, we need a good foundation so that we can do this long term, so that we can make an impact on these people's lives going forward, not just a flash in the pan. Oh, some people showed us, you know, the Mona Lisa last Thursday and we never saw them again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, I mean, I mean, it was like, I wouldn't say it was my best business or like, like anything, but it was just that initial like, ah, the, the initial spark that was like, we can go to lots of schools mm. and we can like impart knowledge on like, cause also the private schools loved it, you know, they really, really enjoyed it. They thought it was great, you know? Yeah. And then, cause, but they like we went to schools like Herschel and Hertzler, where they're definitely going to go see the Mona Lisa. Like I'm, some of them, a lot of them had already seen it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but there was still value there. And I think that one of the most interesting learnings out of that was like, so you do, they would do like 30 minutes of explaining all the art and like, I didn't. Really, I made up a lot of it to be honest. Like I didn't actually know what the hell the Mona Lisa was about, but I just gave my interpretation of it. Mm. And I think that's kind of what art is in, in a way. And um, but um, what was they would do like a they'd have to draw something or like do something. And what was so interesting is that like if you take a grade four from a private school and you take a grade four from like we were in Langa and Kailicha from those schools. Yeah, well, one is maybe a quicker learner and has the, the, the resources to learn faster because at a private school, 
the drawing ability of the guys in Kailiche and Lange was way superior. It was way better. Um, and that was so interesting to see this like creative side that is just like booming from obviously from the struggles that you go through. It just like mm. it really develops the mind. So like that was really interesting to see like, yeah, cool. The one side is definitely you've got a better education and you're equipping yourself with skills. But the other side is this raw talent, you know, yeah. Dude, it's just you, not being fostered. It's crazy, bro. That raw talent is a joke. I mean, you talk about cultural side of things and and uh, creative side of things. I mean, obviously, art being one, music being another. Dude, yeah. I went to Langa, and I think it was in I was first year out of RC or so, two thousand thirteen, two thousand fourteen. Sorry, first year out of school, and um, I went and performed at Langa in in one of the classrooms at like a music day. And cool. dude, these these girls got up and they sang a piece. I had no more skin surface that wasn't covered in goosebumps, bro. Yeah, it's crazy. just they they they've got a rhythm that runs through them. I mean, you talk about you know like rhythmic abilities and drum skills. Um, they it's like through the roof. Their singing ability, their harmonization, and it's just all self-taught. And it's just an outlet for them. You know, it's it's just as you say, this raw, untapped talent. And I'll never forget that. I still have that the newspaper clipping of I, I did a song with them or before them and they're, they're like we're in a photo together and it was in the newspaper and I've still got it on my yes. wall in my old house but it's just that's why I think yeah bro I think art is an amazing way to sort of bridge the gap and bring people together and bro if that stuff can be tapped into it's just it's ludicrous the amount of raw talent there is there yeah that's insane and I think like it's it's I think that's one side that a lot of the guys are focusing on in, say, Kailiche, because Kailiche is amazing. I mean, it's 95% also. So very much around the same culture, and it's developing as, like, its own ecosystem and stuff. But they're very focused on the arts, you know. Mm. So even last night I watched, like, a, an amazing chat between one of my great friends, Sia Bongo Mbaba on Heavy Chef, and this guy started a shack theater in Kailiche um, to try and, and infl- like, um, instigate some some creative juices in, in, in Kalicha and just like unite the guys working together. But the, 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 like the, the, the podcast started with the guy singing, you know, see us singing like the most beautiful song. And that's just like, because that's what he wants to betray. You know, it's mm. such a part of the culture. Mm. And I think, yeah, I would love to take you to Kalicha when you come back and meet these guys. Cause yeah, just like, I think the cross cultural influence is, is what we need to be doing, you know? Yeah. So, we digress slightly. I want to talk a bit more about, about you. Um, okay, cool. So obviously, you obviously had this entrepreneurial um, fire burning inside you, as you say. Um, and then you got into the Entrepreneurial Society in UCT. You were there for like a year. How did you become president so quickly? That's a pretty meteoric <laughs> rise. <laughs> yeah, I went in first year. I had this this burn, burning sensation. And in first end of first year, I applied to be president, like straight up. And and I remember I got like they were like, "Bro, can't can't be president of the first year." You know, it's not, not really. so I didn't make it. I didn't even make it onto the committee that year. Um, and I, yeah, I remember being quite disheartened. I just like, yeah, much an optimist. I think I can do anything. Mm. And um, yeah, then still doing replicate at the time. And, and I think like, I thought it was a very cool business, but in hindsight, like it is cool, but it was not like a game changer, you know? Mm. And then halfway through second year, um, I met Tuscan, who's actually my housemate now. But we came up, we, we kind of started talking about Stockfalls. Um, and 
how big they were and how they like generated 45 billion rand a year. And now there was 11 million people that were part of them. And there was 811,000 of these stockfolds of these micro saving schemes. Mm -hmm. This kind of blew our mind. And this was my big kind of step into the informal, into the informal um, markets and understanding almost the banking system of the township. And um, yeah, shortly after that, that then I kind of in second year applied again and then became president and Tuscan became like, he was also like the, the finance guy. And yeah, that's when really started like growing. I realized like this is where the, the money's at, you know, because not the money's at, but this is where it's happening because yeah. it's what people want to hear. And I don't think I've digressed since then. Yeah. And that, that birthed year two, obviously. That birth year two. It was called Stockfeller at the time. Okay. And, but uh, yeah, birth year two doing UCT upstarts. And again, all we did was uh, went to the township uh, with the Kailicha. I had an interview with um, the Spinach King. He's an amazing guy. I was trying to get him to come to a conference I was organizing. And um, I just said to Tuscan, come, let's go. Let's go meet this guy and let's go ask him everything he knows about Stockfiles. And that started our like getting into researching and, and trying to understand concepts from people themselves, not from reading books, but from understanding what people say about it, because there wasn't actually that much literature. And uh, I think that's really when my love affair with, with Kailich and the informal economy in general really began. Yeah, dude, I think when you're on the ground as well, you build, I mean, the human connection is a far stronger thing, you know, and you, we learn from each other way faster. I mean, obviously books have their their value no doubt but i mean the fact that you're on the ground there and you are taking the initiative and asking the people what they need most you know it's a it's a far more insightful process than kind of looking at the theory of how these things work and then trying to act you know yeah yeah exactly and I, yeah i mean i think like that was great we did that for four months kind of looking around and yeah it really gets that fire fire burning you know when you when you start realizing that you can use your privilege, and, and this is quite relevant now, but you can use your privilege and this university that you have and this this freedom of like having a parent supporting you and all these kind of things that, that you, we take for granted, but you can use that to now go and like find opportunity in the township. And I, when I started doing that research, I realized like how much opportunity was in the township and it's still the same today mm. and how few people are trying to actually change the way they do things, trying to actually extrapolate that, that potential. Um, so yeah, over those four months, just got incredibly excited and, and like into using my privilege to like really get involved and, and see what we could do. And, and I think that kind of did blind me in a way because I did kind of very, at the time I thought I was doing very in-depth research, but um, subsequently having worked and been studied the township a lot more, I realized like, I was just scratching the surface, you know, mm. and I was making a lot of Western assumptions with my kind of Western mindsets around very African issues. So like, wow. So yeah, over that next kind of year, really developed an amazing business and, and was able to sell it like to, to banks. And like, we pitched to the board of standard bank. We like, we, we, um, yeah, we met like the head of Alan Gray, Woolworths Financial Services. We really like, and they just thought we were we were the shit. You know, they thought we were so cool, but we and we did as well. But I think we we also didn't properly engage with the the informal economy and understand how it works within itself. Yeah, I think you also you seem to be a perfectionist, and you seem pretty 
uh, like you hit things hard when you're keen to work on it. But you just need to give yourself a break, dude. You're like 2021, 20, also studying business science, trying to get <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. a business up and running. And I suppose that sort of is that why you started diving into the war uh, towards the end of your degree into the consultancy work you did in the informal economy? Well, I think the consultancy work was, it was that actually started just after I finished my degree. Oh, was it after? Okay. Yeah, slightly after because basically the, cons- yeah. So, cons- so, yeah, so if I go from year two, so to explain year two very quickly, it's basically, it was a stock, so stock files operates, they write everything in a book. Twelve. The idea is 12 people come together and the, the idea started when black farmers couldn't afford to buy cattle. So they'd come together in the 1940s at the cattle auctions and 12 people put their money together. And that would mean one person could buy a cow every month, which wasn't possible before. Great, you're putting your money together. That kind of developed and, and then they were like, I don't actually want a cow in April, I want a cow in December because I want to slaughter it and celebrate Christmas or whatever. So then they were like, cool, we'll put all the money in the pot and then end of the year we can split it and we can all celebrate together and, and slaughter cows and whatever. And celebrate. And then they kind of developed it in like May, someone would be like, oh, there's all this money in this pot, but I desperately need a loan to fix my roof. They were like, cool, we'll lend the money to you and you can then take that money and go and fix your roof, but you must just pay it back with a little bit of interest. So now you're actually building like a, a like a banking system in a very informal manner. Um, so basically what you had to do is we said, listen, don't write that information in a book. That's very unsafe. Rather put it into an app. We'll SMS you immediately saying like how much money you gave your leader or you put it in that pot. Then as soon as you take the money to the bank, because about 74% of Stockfall's money is banked, take that money to the bank. We were plugged into all the bank accounts and then we'd send them an SMS again saying like, cool, your money is safely sitting in the bank. And then you'd update them on interest. So you're kind of unitizing these, these stock files and creating like little mini, mini banks between all of them. Um, so yeah, we won multiple awards doing that. One like getting the ring, the regional one, the national one, went to the semis for the continental. We won like, yeah, we won the premier entrepreneurial recognition award, which was presented by Helen, Helen Ziller for like the top Western Cape awards. And then we pitched at the London school of business and like the global, I can't even remember what it's called, but the global entrepreneurship competition was crazy. We flew to London for like the weekend. It was very fun. And then, um, yeah, so kind of on this massive high, you know, really thinking we we we've killed it, you know, we've crushed it. We pitch into the ba- the pitching to the banks. They want us, like Anne Gray wants us. Everyone wants a piece of us. People are offering us funding all over the place. We we've, we've got developers working for us. We've got community people working for us. So then we hit this thing hard in the start of 2017 in my fourth year, and we launched it, and very quickly, well, I'd say a month or two in started realizing that we'd built the wrong thing and that what we'd built may provide a lot of value to the formal sector like banks and and formal players because it gives them all the data that they need to know on these stock files and it helps bring them into the formal system but it's not necessarily adding value to the informal economy and because for, for example like we were like trying to tackle transparency and security and accountability uh, because this is a problem is reading one in the newspaper. But then if you go and look at their stock files, you think like, my Western brain went, nah, you know, like we'll just solve these problems for these people and this will be great. You look, Then you look at it from an African perspective and for people on the ground and they're like, oh, I had problems last year, people stole money. 
going forward, I'm just going to do it the same. No, people don't think like that. People are like, I solve my own problems. So like they didn't, they, people were robbing them in meetings because they were tipping them off with like their phones saying like the money's on the table now. Oh come in God. and then guys would come in with guns and do that. So to solve that problem, they just go, okay, no meeting, no phones allowed in the meeting. Everyone has to put their phone away. You know? Cool. You solved the problem. Then people would be robbed on the way to the bank when they have all this money. They'd say, cool. Okay. Well, we just walk together in a group of 10 and we don't let anyone rob us. So we organize a taxi. People will solve their own problems. I think that is the biggest learning out of that, you know, don't take that ivory tower approach of being yeah like, and it's like we I've are privileged to... we have scope we will help solve your problems like they probably just want to do it themselves and they do do it themselves and then like it's an age-old system that people do it so kind of, that was a hard learning because yeah. you realized also so they'd solve their own problems to not have people come in to the meeting but basically what that meant is they put their phones away for the whole meeting and how do you use an app without a phone exactly <laughs> yeah. so, that little like learning okay, and you would was... only actually know that by being on the ground and being there and seeing how everything operates and that's where you get that in-depth research that i suppose exactly. you felt like you didn't have yeah so like that's how i did the service yeah. level i spoke to lots of people and then in isolated things you also ask them questions and you phrase the questions in a way you want to hear so yeah like, and you get you the answer you're looking for <laughs> that you've like presumed is what they need Yo, yeah, dude. it's like, would you use an app that uh, gave you more interest? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds great. It's like, would you use an app that stopped you from money um, being stolen? It's like, yes, obviously. Yeah. So, but so then it's, it's like, now the app that you're going to use is actually going to mean you get flipping robbed. So, yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. Geez, yeah. So, so interesting, like learning those little, little intricacies that that's, then kind of in my fourth year as well, I was doing my thesis and I, I'd always planned to do it on stock files as well. And this is what I told like investors and stuff when they'd been like, well, how are you going to do your fourth year and run the business? So I was like, it's mainly a thesis that I've got to do in my fourth year. So I'll, I'll just do my thesis on stock files and I'll use all that, that learning to, to kind of rebuild the business. And um, while the business was going south and we were laying off all our employees and we were like really trying to figure out what we wanted to do, I was doing my thesis on stock files and I'd kind of now doing it again. I always find when you do things like again and again and again, you get better every time. Obviously. Yeah. I'd gone in like now I'd found a sponsor, a sponsor is like someone kind of who's going to help you set up interviews. And ironically, I just found her by going into Kylie Chen, like walking around and I was wearing like a year two t-shirt and I went to like a, a tavern and this girl looks at me and she goes i want a shirt like that i was like sure why do you want a shirt like that she goes my name is yetu so i was like what yeah. this is crazy so i was like cool i'll give you a shirt if you can organize me one stock file meeting where i can actually sit with the owner and like record it and talk for 45 minutes mm. and um she organized one and then i gave a t-shirt and then i said cool can you organize me more and i'll start paying you now for this and then she organized and ended up doing 13 or 14 what? interviews with um, people in Kalicha. And she would sit next to me and help translate and really like build the trust between that person and me and wrote my thesis up. Yeah, I got the class medal, came top of the class, but realized that the problem there was not the transparency and stuff. The whole reason Stockfellers exist is access to credit. So 
you cannot get a loan in the township yeah. from the formal system unless it's like a ridiculous loan. The only two places to get loans through are Stockfalls and um, and like Ch- and uh, not Chisenhams and uh, Mashanises um, who are informal lenders. So Stockfalls lended thirty percent a month and Mashanises lended fifty percent a month. And but the what was crazy about thirty percent a month it seemed excessive to me and it was. But that's the cheapest credit you're going to get in the township. And what was even crazier about that is the default rate was near 0%. So it just blew my mind from like studying finance. I was like, you give a loan in, in the formal sector, you want to get like 30% interest a year. These people are doing 30% a month and the default rate is zero. So yeah. people are paying it back, like you can't believe. And that blew my mind. And that's kind of where we found, kind of founded a new company called Spoon Money based on the idea that like what you need to do is take formal sector loans, be the intermediary, lend it to stock files and let stock files use their community pressures to lend it out to the township. So that business actually exists now. And we got, I got the head of marketing at Sunlum. She quit her job and then we, we, we went into the best FinTech accelerator in Africa and we did it together. And through that process, we turned from saving to rather focusing on the lending side. So now, Spoon Money, which I'm a minor shareholder of, lends money at 10% a month to Stockfiles directly and let Stockfiles lend it to the community in an, in an attempt to try to bring the, the total interest rate down. Um, and yeah, and then so like capital becomes cheaper in the, in the market. And she's done incredibly well and got to about 300 Stockfiles. And yeah. um, so really starting to formalize. And is this all in the world. Western Cape though still? Mainly in the Western Cape, yeah. So you've um, still got a lot more untapped sort of communities, even just in South Africa. Yeah, Western Cape's the smallest Stockfall province by far. I mean, you um, don't even mention spoon money on your on your LinkedIn. You're just running out of space there on your bio, eh? Yeah, exactly. I haven't even mentioned Publisher Blues. Uh, but it's also like spoon money is, is something I was just involved in, in kind of conceptualizing birth, and yeah. bringing about. And then, yeah, it was quite a hard ride for me because effectively year two became spoon money and um that's uh and then i kind of did, I, like i have such a small shareholding i felt like i'd sold everything out and then over this period like that happened it was where i kind of felt like i sold out my company that was the greatest idea i'd ever had and my dad got significantly sicker because he had dementia um, my grandpa died and my girlfriend of seven and a half years broke up with me Jeepers. and it was, this was all in a three month period. And then I finished university and moved home to look after my dad. So I didn't know what to do at this point. Um, but I knew I wanted to do something in the informal economy and I knew that that's where, where my passion spread. So this is where out of the blue, I got offered this consulting job and um, to build the biggest qualitative data set on stock files. Um, in South Africa, well, that's ever been made it's because I, it's, it was unheard of of finding that kind of data. It's super hard to do. So did that for six months with, um, along with a professor, UCT, a law, legal professor, and we we're trying to figure out how, how exactly stock files work so we can bring them into the constitution, the national constitution, and to start recognizing them as legal entities. And um, so they can use formal resources like, um, so they can start using like um, courts, they can start um, getting formal loans directly to them and you can understand their rules. So that would then did 20 hour long interviews in about five focus groups and 
went to a couple meetings and that's really where I got deep into that was an incredibly fun time like terrifying but fun like going to the craziest areas of Kailicha I was gonna um, ask that I mean because you know my, the lady who works at our house uh, she's like my other mother we're very close with her family and stuff and I've always <laughs> wanted to go and visit and she's always been slightly apprehensive I mean w- was there an element of I mean I suppose that data is very difficult to come by but also because how it's accessed you know or how you access it it's like it's pre- pretty hard to come by how, how did you sort of get over that and entering these sort of areas where you know that there is violence and crime stuff like that yeah i mean yeah it is i think i was because i'd gone through all the stuff i was also just a bit like i was like this time i do something i'm gonna get it right you know mm. i want to do the proper research i want to properly understand these stock files so you know during that time i really yeah i had year two this girl she helped me again and organized attorney and she's she's amazing like kind of lost a bit of touch with her now but um she was she she organized all these interviews so i had her next to me the whole time and okay she, so she she built the trust of the people that i was interviewing and sit in their shacks that often make us coffee and stuff is amazing you know people that have nothing that are so proud to, that i'm there because i in some of the areas i went to i was definitely the, the only white person that's probably like ever been there um, so like, it's like a respect and, thing as well. I mean, they just appreciate you making the effort to sort of learn about them. Yeah, so so much of a respect thing. I think that's and that's my overarching idea of the township, and that's what I love about it, and that's what people don't get. You know, I think when like especially yeah, you know, white people don't get in South Africa is like we think it's just dangerous, and people don't want us there, and, and like it's, it's you're being an idiot by going there. Well, actually, on the other side of the curtain, you're pretty safe going there being a white person because the entire community sees you very quickly and, like, kind of knows that you're there. And the second part of that is, like, if you're in a community with a strong community structure, like Kailicha, where it's 95% Muslim, community is very strong. So they see you there, and the, 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 the idea on the ground, the major thing is that, like, they want to keep you safe because they, they see the value in having white people come there. Because I go there, I spend my money there. That is all new money coming into the economy, into the ecosystem. And there's this respect around, like, treating people with dignity that have taken the time to come out to their community and looking after them, you know. That's the kind of feeling I got on the ground, and I get on the ground all the time is a sense of respect and actually me being a white person in Kailisha counts in my favor because I very much stick out, you know, mm. and the whole community knows I'm there. So if something does happen to me, people know I've been there, you know, and they've watched me, eyes have been on me. So yeah, I also found the more I went, the more people knew me and it, uh, yeah, I really, really got built quite a relationship with a lot of people. So after your year of, or how long, how long were you doing the, um, uh, the consultancy for the research? Yeah, I did. I did it for about eight months and it was mainly on the on the weekend because that's when people had free time and mm. um, so I did that on the weekend and then in the week I was building I was reviewing coffee shops and with um, yeah just because I thought it was cool my dad had written a column for the weekend August called uh, sunny side up uh, in for about two and a half years in early 2000 it become like a cult classic so you'd write like breakfast reviews of all these at the time, it was more like hotels and stuff that did really good Sunday breakfasts, and he loved his breakfast. And then his best mate would draw like a little picture of um, of this guy called Mork sitting at the coffee shop reading a, a paper, who's actually quite now he's now quite a famous artist. 
And it became like a cult classic. People would cut these newspaper clippings out, frame them and put them on their walls in like the, all the things, all the places. I think even the, the pancake place at the Rondebosch craft market still has their, their printed out really? thing on the yeah. table. Yeah. So it's like huge cult classic. So when my dad started getting sick, I, I really wanted to do something to, to kind of in his legacy. And he'd always wanted to put that online and create like sunny side up as like an online, um, daily place to find really cool coffee shops and have like all breakfast places and have like cool funky reviews of it. So when he started getting sick, I was like, cool, I'm going to do this. I really dig these independent coffee shops and I see they've got like a similar ethos of trying to imprint something with the world, independent coffee shops. They, they've got, they're entrepreneurs at the, at the home and they are not just there to make money. They actually are there to, to share their like unique, um, yeah, unique spin of the world with yeah. other people. It's an and experience. That's what I really wanted to you know, discover. you really associate it as yeah. an experience. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's more than like Vida and bootleggers in Seattle. Yeah, you get great coffee and good service and, and whatever, but they all look the same. You know, mm. there is no experience that you you kind of speaking about. To be honest, the coffee scene in South Africa is wild, bro. Even being over in the UK, there's not a lot of like really nice coffee that you can just buy. Yeah. Uh, we've like there's some really nice coffee at a small little place in Swellendam called Clock Peaks and we bought like three cool. bags over and we've smashed <laughs> all of it and it's so bleak because we're back on like Nescafe Mood Coffee really. yeah, nah. yeah. Nah. it's nah. not the same man. no so then dude obviously you started Coffee Shop Blues um, and then how how did that progress into ground culture can you tell me about that yeah so yeah, I mean, I, it's been a long process. You know, I think when I started Coffee Shop Blues, I just didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, but I was having a lot of fun doing it. And I was working this consulting job in the side and I was earning, earning pretty well from that. And so it kind of allowed me to do whatever I wanted with Coffee Shop Blues. And yeah, so I think over the, the course of a year, I, review, I went to 200 coffee shops, I reviewed 150 and I, and I uploaded 130 of my favorites onto the onto the website Coffee Shop Blues. I built like a map so you could find all the coffee shops. And I had like included photos, write-ups, menus, opening times, where they had Wi-Fi parking and poke points. And I really wanted like was trying to create a database of um, really cool coffee shops for people to go and support. So where they supported the owner and the support and the owners supported the staff who worked with and upskilled them. I really liked that whole element. And as opposed to like a, a franchise or a chain where it is literally about making yeah. the head honcho just bucks in his pocket, you know? So over the course of a year, I, re I reviewed those 130, built the website, got, built over 10,000 followers on Instagram for, for Coffee Shop Blues, as well as like 2,000 monthly visitors that came to the website to find coffee shops and is really starting to, to build something. And I think what I started realizing in this phase is how like similar the ethos of these coffee shops were in like imparting something in the world and kind of like being unique and special and supporting the people with that. It seemed like there was a cool bridge that could be built between those coffee shops and the work I was doing in Kailiche. It seemed like there was something similar then and those people from each of the, the groups had like-minded ideas about things. So I started toying with the ideas of connecting these two communities. Um, so yeah, the next year, which was last year, I started doing quite a lot of like 
like barista competitions and stuff with the coffee shops, which is super cool. And like building a brand for the baristas and then like doing like, I did like my favorite thing is a clothing drive, which I did. So on Mandela day, we got like everyone to drop off clothes at um, like old clothes at a couple of coffee shops. And then those people got a free coffee for the, for the clothes. And then which built the brand of the coffee shop and, and like was just a cool dropper point for the clothes. I then just went and picked up all the clothes, took them to a mate of mine in Kailicha, who runs like a little community center. And we started a thrift store. So it was like a really cool sure. way of taking like nothing to like building a business building, with someone, you know? not necessarily being like, here's some free clothes, being like, no, 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 you must sell these clothes to the community for not a lot, like 10, 20 rand. But you must then use that money to reinvest in your community center and, and grow it further. So just starting to identify these gaps between the two, the two markets and how you can like not hurt white people at all, and not like downgrade them, but you can make serious social impact in in another area. And, and kind of started focusing on those kind of kind of bridges. Um, and then and then I started like hang out with oh, I'd been hanging out at Sikis, which is an amazing coffee shop in Kailicha, which when this whole lockdown is over, I like I highly recommend anyone to go. They're totally safe, like in like a formal part of Kalicha, not really shacks anywhere. Um, very safe and just very cool, like soulful place where a lot of creatives connect. Um, and was hanging out there a lot and then met uh, like an entrepreneur dropped off a jar of honey with Siki. And then Siki had immediately been like, listen, you should talk to Seb. Like, He's, well, they call me Bash in, in Kailicha. Actually, just in generally in African society, people tend to call me Bash, which I love from Sebastian. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I just think it's so cool. And um, so he's like, Bash, you should meet Bash. And then I met this guy, a 52-year-old beekeeper who had been selling honey for about three years in Kailicha. And he was selling about 25 kilograms a month, which was pretty respectable, sure. but only to his Kailicha community. And I met this guy and we like chatted and I was like, Hey, like, let's like, I'll be super keen to try to get your product into coffee shops. And he was like, cool. And, and kind of during that conversation, very open and honest and kind of talking about it. And this is like, I find really interesting with this whole movement is like talking about it and being like, he's like, listen, I, I'll never be able to walk into a coffee shop and be able to just sell honey straight to the owner, you know, mm. because when he walks into a coffee shop, the immediate thing of what an owner does or into anything is the owner goes, oh no, this guy's looking for a job. That's like the first reaction the owner will have. And it's the first reaction. I mean, I've had it when I'm like working in somewhere you're like, oh no, it's just like programming in your brain says like this person looking for a job. However, when a white customer works in, it goes like, hey, how can I help you? Yeah. you know, what can I do with you? It's like such a small thing, but it, it means I can walk into a whole lot of coffee shops, get a very friendly greeting and immediately I've got a better chance of getting my product in there. Someone else walks in, it's like, what do you want? You know? It's just stigma, now going a preconceived idea of why they're there. Exactly, exactly. And it's built on like, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not people necessarily actively trying to be, do that it's just from over time like being harder and harder and then like but the the ideas is like that's one of the things that's like it's just so instilled in people but it's so wrong you know just because that person that the customer that walked in you were so nice to them but they don't necessarily need you being nice the person looking for a job even if they're not looking for a job and um, you're being so rude to them. And if they are looking for a job, like you're knocking their confidence so further down, you know, by being like an asshole to them just because 
that's the way you've always done things. Like how, like that is like a huge gap in privilege and that, that just can't even be explained, you know? And it's, 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 it, it just plays further into this idea of separating us. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so it was really interesting having that conversation and having that realization, but I, I started working with, with the Boosie honey and then, and then Woodlands craft cigarettes with Adam and Davi being like my best mates. And they really pushed me into trying to sell products in coffee shops. So like, you need to monetize this thing now. And yeah, kind of pushed me there and then got another one, suck at straws and got those quickly into like 23 coffee shops and then took on a whole lot more products. And in the course of a year, it got up to about 75 independent coffee shops that were using and selling our products. And these were the products of local small businesses. And we built a really cool ecosystem between local small businesses and township entrepreneurs, uniting that side along with these independent coffee shop owners and independent coffee shops. You built an ecosystem that was totally independent of uh, corporate dominance and it stood on its own and really starting to, to, to build some connections there and build that, that, that sense of unity much stronger. And um, was so successful doing that, that I'd taken a bussy honey from 25 kilograms a month to 250 kilograms oh. a month in just eight months, you know? So and 10 times the guy's business. making a huge difference in his life and in the, just the ecosystem within Kyalicha. Exactly. Starting to like build some kind of employment that side, even though we were buying, we still buying the honey, but like he started to hire people and to like help Jared and stuff, you know, but the, the, the amazing learning from that was like, that really was when I was like, okay, this is what the formal sector can do in developing a township based business. Mm. You know, it can 10 times that business, you know, just, I did have to, like I changed, it was small intricacies that I had to change. Like he was in a plastic bottle with a pretty average label. And I then just like put it in a glass jar and, and then put a little tag on, wrote his story on the side and like fixed his label a bit. So that's all I did. But white people were like, yes, I want to support this, you know, because that's also another misconception is that like white people really want to help in this country. And you, you see this with like the black movement It's like when there's something the blackout Tuesday movement or whatever, when there's like something that people can put themselves out there, they do, you know, they really want to help. They just don't always know how. And they've been told things are the way they are and they shouldn't go to township and it's dangerous. But if, if it's as simple as being in a shop and choosing between a honey that's mass manufactured and one that's got a label of, of how you're supporting a township entrepreneur, we go for, the, for that one, you know, the township entrepreneur. And I think that's kind of, coming to terms with the fact that like people are inherently good. We just struggle to figure out the right ways to actually, you need to help do what them we help want to do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that's really when I like, figured that all out and like started and I'm still like learning a lot about it, but, but just kind of realizing that no one needs to get hurt in the process, but you can massively impact one side of the of the world and you can add value to someone that changed their purchasing decision and paid five rand more um, and now sees it in their shelf every day. And they're like, I did that. You know, I supported that entrepreneur. I am playing a role in this new thing. So you can kind of start to see where ground culture is starting to really brew here. And um, excuse the pun. But yeah, 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 excuse the pun. <laughs> And, but then, yeah, and then obviously two and a half months ago, six, when lockdown happened, 65 of those 75 coffee shops 
close their doors temporarily and quite a few of them permanently now. So that whole, that whole ecosystem that was so amazing, that was separate from corporate dominance and that could stand on its own, came <laughs> kind of crashing down because we had this black swan event being the corona coronavirus. And um, yeah, that kind of forced me to, to adapt. And yeah, to start, to start thinking about what the hell the world's going to look like after this. It's going to be a totally different place. Yeah. Do you think that's why you've shifted now to online consumption and you think you want to almost cut out that? What, what is your thinking behind that? Yeah. So it's, I mean, so the way it started is kind of, we knew lockdown was coming. It was announced on like a Sunday and then on a like Saturday. A week, we knew, yeah. We had like a couple of days and I was like, shit, like I've got, so much stock of all the stuff I've been, cause I've been building up my stock um, to, to, to like start growing bigger and, and being able to not waste my time, like having to look and keep on top of things. I was like, cool, buy around my stock. And then as Corona, the lockdown hits and I was like, what the hell? I actually need cash flow to get through the next couple of weeks or months. Like I need to pay my rent, you know? So, yeah, then I, I just like put a little small business menu together, posted it on a couple groups, put it on my Instagram, and I made 23 orders of about 65 products in just um, three days. And I was like, whoa, okay, this is pretty cool. Like, <laughs> while it wasn't like a massive thing, I didn't put much work into this, and, and I've done this in three days. Like, two days into lockdown, I was then like, okay, this, this could be something like people have been telling me to go online for a while, but like, just forced your hand. A, yeah. Forced my hand and I, I put it down. So, and spent the next month, like grinding every day. And it hasn't stopped until now of like 14 hours a day, seven days a week. And just like really getting into this. And I spent the first two weeks, I didn't know what the hell I was doing and and kind of like, ah, oh, get an online store together as fast, like before anyone else does it. And then I kind of saw a few pop up. And then I think this kind of ties into the, to your building a parachute is at that point when I was like, I was seeing myself like trying to do the whole Icarus fly, like fly as fast as I can, as yeah. high as I can to be the first one. At this point I was like, whoa, 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 slow roll. And I like pulled myself completely back. And I was like, others are launching, you know? rather build this thing properly you know rather build it with a foundation and put systems in place that when when and when you have those systems in place then you can can fly as high as you want but you know you've got something to fall back on and you know yeah. you know what's going on because once something's flying incredibly fast it's very hard to start building systems and foundations at that point because you're just trying to hold on to the growth yeah it's a scalability thing which i think is often you know, you obviously want the thing to be as big and as good and get as much, you know, scope and reach as possible. But if you kind of built it on sand, as soon as it does sort of start snowballing, how do you juggle that? So, I mean, what have you been yeah. doing? I mean, because obviously, how much how much stuff have you learned? Because obviously, hitting the online world is a completely different ball game. How much of the stuff that you knew did you apply? Was it quite a big learning curve over this period? Yeah, I think so. I think I think it's like a culmination of everything I've learned in the last five years. I just has come into this kind of pinnacle point. I like I genuinely feel like I've got incredibly lucky over the last two months. Like I was in incredibly unlucky for the last two and a half years. And uh with um with coming out of that year too and of his like girlfriend breaking up with me and getting over that and then my dad like having to look after him 
really, really tough, you know, having to like, the guy you, you idolize, you are now like helping him, you know, carrying him in and out of the bath every now and then right near the end and like really, really difficult. But then kind of coming into this year and this corona and I know it's been a horrible thing for the world and it's, it's, it's really like there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering from this. But for me personally, everything has come into like alignments, like I was going to head in a totally different direction with um, with what I was building, with the coffee shops and stuff. And then I had to stop and like force my force my hand, as you said, like an analogy. And I started being like, okay, actually, this is the right model. And I, I moved into the online space, built a website very quickly, linked all the stories that I had these entrepreneurs that I was working with, like linked that, then found like a whole lot more, suddenly got them in. Then like the... I've got a just moved into this new place in Greenpoint and I've got like a garage here and turned that garage very quickly over the month into a warehouse like an operating warehouse like friends gave me into well one of the small businesses I worked with hooked me up with like insulation for the roof and there was paint in the garage we don't pay extra for the garage there was I found shelves downstairs which are like amazing I found trestle tables I found tables I found um yeah, I just found, like, I haven't spent a cent on the warehouse. I was just so lucky that all the stuff was here. Then, like, I decided I'm going to do dry goods and nuts and, like, grains and legumes and these kind of things. And Just for I preservation. Kinda, it's so yeah, it's not going to go off. Yeah. And I so like, I kind of got to, I figured mm. out, like, how to get to the top supply. So we use the same supply as Woolworths. So all our stuff's GMO-free and naturally farmed, but we buy it in bulk. And so we got this really good quality stuff. And I was like, cool, this will grow the product range massively. And it'll allow me to kind of operate in the retail space. But I wasn't really thinking that too much at the time. I was just kind of like hustling and, and doing things. And then quickly, like the one day I ordered the labels in like maybe like 45 minutes. I made and ordered the labels in 45 minutes. <laughs> and then like ordered like the some brown bags. I was like, this could be cool in like, in like half an hour. And then... Spend like a while like packaging all this stuff into um, stuff. And only one day when it was just like lying on the ground in the boxes, I looked down at this and I was like, whoa, like this is not just launching an online store. Like this is redefining retail in a way because we've been, we're doing exactly what a lot of like retailers in South Africa promised to do for years. We, we're making everything biodegradable. We are supporting entrepreneurs that are trying to change the world in their own rights. We're uniting them to, to work together. We're creating a marketplace for passionate people to connect, to grow, and to, to kind of sell their products. So we're creating, we're uniting entrepreneurs on the one side, but now we're trying to build a community of like-minded people that want to support entrepreneurs. They're kind of the people that will make the choice to buy the jar with the story um, on the side, that got a jar of honey, it's only five and more over the other one mm. we're uniting those kind of people to support to bring in so it's all about building a community um between like-minded people that are not necessarily entrepreneurs but want to do the right thing and are passionate patriotic people so building a community so the, like just kind of very lucky that i fell into a lot of this stuff and like like everything i built like all the product like the product photography, we've got an amazing video coming out on Monday. It's just made by like my best, one of my best mates. I, I call like everyone my best mate, but Brett, this guy Brett who runs Sundance Films. And he like, another chance of luck is like, I, he, I was like, 
asked him if he wanted to do a video and then he was like, oh, ah, and then he was like, yes, totally in um, to do it. And then like literally the same day, I got a message from an, another very good friend of mine, Pooch Francesco, to say like, hey, dude, I know you took me to Kailuche a while ago. And, and I said like, and I met your your honey, your honey man, Umsukoli, and do like, I've still got this land at my house that there's a forest at the top of my estate that we're trying to rehabilitate. Do you still want to put your beehives in the forest? Oh, and this is, and I was like, yeah, dude, this is, that's crazy because also we're about to film a video. I bought, bought, bought two beehives about six months ago as well for this purpose. I was like, we actually need to film a video for like laying foundations for New South Africa and like working with passionate entrepreneurs. Like, do you think we can install the beehives and film the video at the same time? And he was like, yeah, sure. And then I called him Sikoli and I was like, hey, do you want to come install the beehives this weekend and we can do a video at the same time? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. And that all like just happened. And now we've got the most beautiful video that is like just got the ethos of what we're doing. But again, blind luck, you know. Oh, dude, that is the most beautiful story, dude. When do you say that that's dropping? Dropping it on Monday. It'll probably come on Monday, yeah. And you've been doing this all during do. lockdown, dude. Yeah, it's, it's quite crazy. You'll see we've got the masks in the video, but um, last two months have been a, a wild ride, you know, but I uh, just loved every second. But dude, I mean, it's, you know, it seems like it's obviously just like blown up now, but I mean, this is years of hard work, you know, and all the struggles you had with regards to even your research into the stock files and building communities and then having to go back with year two and stuff and, and build those, it's, you know, it, it may seem like luck, but I think it's because you've been working so fucking hard for so yeah. long and you've built up a community of like-minded people as soon as the shit hits the fan you know you switching on and they are too and you just all want to help each other for the greater good you know yeah, yeah. exactly Dude. i mean that's I, it is definitely the combination of like five years of, of hard hard graft and and a lot of failures i'll tell you i'm very honest a lot of a lot of failures and and hardships you know i think but I think those are what teach you the, the, the most. What, what, what would you say to a budding entrepreneur? If you, Because <laughs> a lot of us are like, oh, I'm going to start a company. But there's a lot that comes into it. Do you have any like pearls of wisdom of things that you would say yeah. as like the foundation of when you get into something like that, what you should do? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think there's this, yeah, this building a foundation is a weird one. Because I've spoken about it before and people are like, what exactly do you mean by that? But I think like building a foundation in everything you do is the most important thing. So like the whole way through Coffee Shop Blues, I built foundations, you know. I didn't stop until I got to 10,000 followers. I didn't stop until I got to 1,500 views on the website. I didn't stop until I got into, the goal was initially 100 coffee shops, but got into 75. I didn't stop until I started working with 10 entrepreneurs. But at every point, you know, I'm, I'm pushing to, to a point where I've set a goal and I hit that goal and now I've banked that, you know, mm. that is now like something I can use for the future. And mm. um, so the 75 coffee shops that I still have, like I still genuinely, like I want to be selling products to them as well. And I want to keep that ecosystem going because I'm still passionate about that side and very much want to pull those coffee shops into this movement of what we're trying to create. Cause it's more than just an online store. It's like a movement towards putting the power back in, in passionate people's hands. And, mm. um, so yeah, any entrepreneur, the, the the advice I would have is like, you gotta be you gotta you gotta be a go getter. You know, you you do have to go quick at certain points. So but but make sure you're setting a goal that you're achieving. So once you know the goal you want to achieve, build it like a foundation of everything you need to get there. 
and then get try to get to that point as fast as you can, but learn as much as you go along. But don't change your direction until you get to that point. Mm. Because if you change your direction until you get to that point, so say you set a goal of like 100 or whatever, and you, you only get to 30, and then you're like, ah, actually, I think like maybe I should now do, so it's like for coffee shops, for example. So you say like, I want to get to 100 coffee shops, and then you get to 30 coffee shops, and you'd be like, actually, this isn't working. Like, I think I want to launch an online store. Mm. You're, now, you're now changing, pivoting towards that head online store. It's like you are losing those 30 that you've just built for, and those had value, but not enough value to bank yet. Not enough value to be like, cool. I can move on to the next thing. And mm. um, so even with this lockdown, I think like a big thing that I'm very grateful for is like 65 to 75 might have closed down, but I still had 10 that were open and those 10 actually did very well. So that kind of got me just enough cash flow just to, to float me to, to launching this online store. Whereas if um, you bailed when you won 30, they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be there at all. I built up such a strong relationship with those coffee shops and with the owners, you know, so I think like that's in terms of foundations, that's really what you've got to be doing is is foundations can be a broad thing. But I think like building something up to a certain point where you know you can sustain it, that is a foundation. Um, but building something to a point, even if you know it's like, because I think like with year two, I hit, I went try to like, like I said, I, we were going to have a hundred stock files signed up in month one, you know, mm. we didn't even get like three or four. Yeah. So you set the, the limit too high and you, and you get that limit in your head. Um, but uh, you kind of, you want to hit the sky as fast as you can. And I threw everything in. I think with, um, with Coffee Shop Blues, when I started, I was like, building foundations was the, the biggest thing. It's like, even if you, by the time, like the, the reviews were a good one. Like I did 30, like really thorough reviews, but then realized like through that, like, cool. Um, it's still hard to make money online. So, but like 30 reviews is not big enough to build anything. So I was like, cool, just get to a hundred, you know? So I shortened the reviews. I was like, do them shorter, do them punchier, but have the photos have the menus, have all these things and build a cool website to do them. And then I got to a hundred, you know? So even though I did pivot a little bit, it wasn't a big thing that changed everything. It was just a refinement though. It's still the same underlying goal and principles. You're still covering the same content. And I suppose you're not really jeopardizing sort of your purpose or your or your ethos while while pivoting, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the big thing is like, don't stop until you absolutely know your answer. And I think like, that's the same with everything. Jeepers, dude, this has been mind blowing for me to listen to this. Like, I had no idea the level of things you have done. Like, I knew about ground culture. I knew about coffee shop blues. I knew you'd study, but dude, it is incredible to hear what you've done, bro. I like, you've like deeply inspired me now. I feel like, what the fuck, <laughs> what am I doing with my life, bro? Like, honestly, I really hope people like hear about you and this, this shit deserves to be, you know, like your parents are journalists. It needs to be in the news, bro. Like back. people need to hear about this as much as possible, dude what an amazing yeah. message you have and i think your your heart is in such a pure place and you know you talk about the monetization and and being able to make cash from it but it's never from you know that selfish point of view which i found 
with the people I've spoken to who do seem to be making a difference in the businesses that they've started is that's the goal. It's not a personal gain. It's like, let mm. me expand this and reach as many people and change as many people's lives as possible. Because in that way, it has, you know, as you talk about the foundation to expand and grow. Dude, I can't, <laughs> I can't commend you enough. I mean, I'm sure your parents are incredibly, incredibly proud. And I know it must have been a, a very, very difficult time with your dad, but I know he must be incredibly proud and to have started something from you know being inspired by him to being birthing into this sort of this realm and making a difference a tangible difference as well it's just incredible my bro yeah oh thanks bro i think what, what one thing i should also mention is like when you were flying high and you and you won the voice and stuff i remember watching you and being like quite quite funny being quite competitive being like no nah, no nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cash this up to this dude. So it's incredibly, it's so special to be chatting with you, you know, and like really like coming back to a point where we were both kind of together and, and figuring out how, how this works, you know. So really been inspired by, by your journey. And um, so it's incredibly poignant and special to, to kind of come full circle and be having this chat with you now. Oh, dude. Well, I'm I'm honored to be honest that I can inspire you in a small way by singing a few songs on TV. Um, uh, it's a, oh. a big way. I think the big inspiration that I took from it is that like it wasn't just like again talking about foundations. It wasn't just something that you lucked into completely. You know, I I know for a fact that you you put in the grind for like two years. I remember hearing this like when I came back because I think you also did business science in first year. Yeah. And and then you took a year off, I think, and yeah. you 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 gave it horns, you know. And I remember, mom, I think your mom told my mom that like you were very diligent about waking up and ensuring you're at your desk at eight or nine or whatever, and like driving what you're passionate about. And I think that's what speaks 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 miles, you know. So so yeah, incredibly like yeah, very very. Uh, hold you in a very high regard and got a lot of respect for you as well oh, well thank you my brother it really means a lot well when i'm back in sa we must definitely do something even if i can just tag along and watch what you do because it just sounds so amazing i'd love to come and try out some of the local coffee in kailicha and we can i just love to see what you do because it really is powerful powerful stuff and i'm deeply inspired by it so and i love coffee yeah good. and i think yeah, good yeah brushes <laughs> the way the cobwebs bro <laughs> Yeah, no, the covers are gone. <laughs> <laughs> but a distant um, memory. Oh. Yeah, distant memory. But uh, yeah, I'd love to love to um, take you to Kailicha. And I think like, yeah, if you're ever working, I'd love to get you involved in the ghetto sessions. Uh, Dude. Because it's something I hold very close to my heart. And um, Dude, I am down. As soon as, I, as soon as we can get a repatriation flight, get our lockdown <laughs> in the UK, I am there, bro honestly yeah cool cool let's, but i'm gonna be i'm gonna be watching you very closely and be following you um but i just really just want to say thank you so much for your time my bro i've really enjoyed this yeah so vibrate thank you so much for for giving me the opportunity as well guys thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the how to build a parachute podcast i really enjoyed it i think seb had a lot of great things to say and it just shows that we're all on journeys and they take different paths and you kind of get those perspective shifts and his has really put his heart in a very pure place and it seems like he's working towards something he's very passionate about and it's for the greater good so go check him out support him on socials support his brand and we'll see you next time